At this time, watch me press the button. Welcome, men. Would you pray with me? Blessed you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to be engaged with the words of Torah. O Lord, our God, we ask that you make the words of your Torah sweet in our mouths and in the mouths of your entire people, the house of Israel. May we, our descendants and the descendants of your people, the house of Israel, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, O Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, who gives the Torah. Amen. Amen. And uh, there you go. <laughs> you, you got one too, right? Yeah, but I don't receive his text messages. Oh. Right. We never, we never got right, so there, yeah, we're not that close yet. <laughs> okay. So, how many of you did your homework? How many of you thought lesson four was amazingly short and what a blessing? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> Amen. Okay. So I did the same thing for you on lesson five, and then we're just going to slap you back into uh, production, and we'll move forward. So... I want to make sure we're clear on the breakdown. I don't, I don't know if it was clear enough in the uh, study guide, but of the four Gospels, three of them are called because they, they parallel. parallel one another. Those are, name one, one Gospel, Mark, Luke. That's good. It's a funny place to start. I would have started with, and then Mark. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's like the three stooges. That's great. Okay. So we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels, and 75% of their content is leading up to the last week of the Master's life. 25% of those gospels is one week. One week. And a couple of days after that. You might think that was important. <laughs> Big week, I guess. The last gospel, John, actually is busted down 50-50. Half of his is before that week, and fully half of his gospel is during that last week and beyond. Okay? So, yeah? Well, if you think about it, the four, the four gospels we have, none of them were written by what we redeem inside the 12 Yeshua's inner circle. So, for John to spend a lot of time around the death of Yeshua makes sense because he was part of that. Sure. And since he's looking at it from a mystical perspective and trying to give us the significance beyond the physical, it makes makes a whole lot of sense. You're right. So, with that in mind, what is the identifier in all four Gospels where we know we're about to start the last week? When he enters Jerusalem. How does he enter Jerusalem? Uber? Lift. Lift? <laughs> in secret. In secret. Mm. Oh, not that one. Well, that was the, that was the Sukkot reference. He yeah. in secret. Right. For Pesach, when he comes to die, he comes in on a donkey. On a Which cult. was kind of like the uh, first century version of Uber. I think he did borrow it. From That's right. Else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, probably didn't have to pay anything for that. Yeah. First ride was free. Yeah, there it is. Right. But you have to bring it back. Okay. Didn't need the second. That's right. All right. So, yeah. So, we're looking for the cult, and you're not up to that. Uh, so, you had a whole lot of reading, I believe, in Luke this week, right? Several chapters, right? And John. And John? 
Bumping you get, it was John. It was, it was his John. Yeah, you got like to. That's right. And you got a whole lot more of John coming next week. So. No, Luke. I think a little bit of. Luke. I, I get. Like I'm a week ahead of you guys, so I just I just get confused. One one is it? Yeah, let's. That's a lot when you know. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's walk through this. Um, major thing we started with is the Mount of Transfiguration. So, what was what did you see for the first time as you walked through this, seeing it in three or four different gospels? Not a trick question. Anything? Okay. I heard that that lip smack. I forgot that. Well, I was reading it, and and and, and of course Peter says, "Let's direct the you know." And Some I was kind like, of tense tabernacles. It sounds stupid. Why are you saying that? Yeah. And and and, and, and to me it was like, okay, well, one time they record it. That's just a misnomer. The second time, well, okay, well, there's obviously something here. What is it? Uh, and I and then I continued reading. Like, oh yeah, it's it's your code. But yeah. but but like in reading in the English translation I was using, that's not readily right. apparent. There's and no. There's no clue. Right. And, and quite frankly, if you're not a Torah keeper and you're not familiar with the, with the, the um, pilgrimage feasts and the idea that we're actually, all of us, setting these little shelters up in our backyards or uh, on our porches or wherever it may be, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really get it. He sounds like a moron. Well, I, I felt a little, like, I felt also like a moron because I didn't make that connection. But at least you got it. You got it. Eventually. Okay. Was there Yes, I, I, I forgot okay. that they, there's an explicit reference in at least one of the Gospels that says, and when he said that, I tell you that Elijah has already come, it, like one or maybe two of them say, like, and they knew that he was talking about Yohan the Immerser. Yeah. I, I forgot that it was like that explicit. Yeah. In their day, there was no question. Yeah. Good. I got um, it's like one of those things, you know, you've read it a gazillion times, yeah. but it, it kind of just struck me as, I, for whatever reason, I focused on it more this year was, or as I was reading this, was right before it goes into the Mount of Transfiguration, Yeshua makes a statement previous to that. He says, some of you will not taste see death, death or taste death yeah. until you've seen the kingdom of God come in its in, in its power or in its glory. Right. And and then he takes those three up to the Mount of Transfiguration and voila, Bam. they get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And, you know, I, again, I've read that before, but it it just more, kind of jumped out at me that... That could have been it. That, I, well, that that was it because... The, later the, on, later on, they're talking about John, who he's never, you know... Going to last longer. Could be. Well, but they all died. John didn't die until the last. Correct. But you're right. But he died. <laughs> he died. So he did taste death. <laughs> he did taste death. Although he, he did see the kingdom in, in, a, in the revelation. So that would, yeah, be, well, the of only, course, that would be the only other way yeah, to get there. Is exactly. You say his visions were, yeah. were that. Yeah. That's good. Um, that's the, that's your two options, but I actually kind of think that the Mount of Transfiguration was because it's interesting. He makes that statement and then immediately takes those three up to the mountain. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it to me was almost like like a Narnia experience. You know, we we just passed through the wardrobe. Right. We just 
Just like, yeah. Wow. Stepped into the portal for a few minutes. Yeah. And, and now we got to come back out again. Right. Good. Uh, What's well, that to me? I've always since since we, we've been reading this for you know, many years now. Yeah. Time. And um, so the Sukkot thing was something we had we I we've talked about before. What surprised me, I guess, was that apparently at least two of the Gospels almost kind of make it seem like, yeah, even with Sukkot, it still doesn't explain Peter's comment because they both they kind of say like he doesn't even know what to say. Spoke, yeah, he's, he's just like, so like, overwhelmed. What do we do? Like, uh, let's build three Sukkot here. Why would he say it though? Based on just this past Sukkot and your experience. Well, it definitely seems to be tied into the whole idea of the, the Ushpizin. Ushpizin, yeah, right? I mean, the concept that we're going to invite special guests each day that represents something important in the history of our faith. And it's kind of odd that Elijah's not included. But here's a question for you. Sense. Do you think this actually takes place during Sukkot? The reason why I question that is Judaism traditionally has people stay in Jerusalem for the entirety of Sukkot. No question. No, so we do know that... them have wandered off. Yeah, well, we do know, just based on the whole Emmaus Road thing, and, and historically... Well, Pesach, you can leave. Yeah. Sukkot, you're not expected to. I, I agree. But it didn't need to be during Sukkot. It could have been leading up to, everybody's True. building it, or they're just busting it. It could be either but That's true. I guess the way I've always thought about that, I mean, because the text explicitly says the Feast of Tabernacles was, was at hand was or something like that. Or whatever. Yeah. So we're probably between Yom Kippur and, yeah. Yeah. and Tabernacles, right? right. So everybody's building. So, yeah. Let's build so, one now. Well, you are probably, you know, depending on where you live in, in the country, you're sh- probably schlepping your way up to Jerusalem. Yeah. But Peter... You know when when he's he's seen what he's seen, right? And well, wait a minute, the glory of God is here. Yeah. I don't need to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> that God is right here. That could explain the Gospels being almost like he doesn't really know what he's saying because they're probably thinking because in that approach to it, it's almost like Peter knows they're supposed to go to Jerusalem, but yeah. in that moment, he just felt like that must be where he is. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is, this is good. It. It's a perfect time. It just seemed like an aberration of behavior when you like, think about like what are most you know righteousness reaction when shining people appear <laughs> yeah but not peter he starts saying stuff he starts to babble he's not easily intimidated he's a babbler except for that one moment with the, with the whole cock a little do thing aside from that he yeah, really that is, didn't work out well he's pretty neither tough did, neither did standing on the water for too long <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but no but he gets out there I mean, oh the yeah 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 that I'm whole story i think to me captures his his attitude and like if, if I was afraid of something and wasn't sure if it was my friend or not, I don't think I would ask it yes. to ask me to do something that I will certainly die yes. attempting to do. Yes. Tom asks, how did they know or recognize uh, Moses and Elijah? I was just about to say that, of course, we know the answer is, you know, from Flannel the jerseys, drums. right? Yeah. <laughs> got the number, got the name on the back. I was thinking it was the, the pictures in all the churches. The <laughs> <laughs> same last, yeah. That makes sense. Flip to the page in your Bible. That's yeah. got they, they have the children's Torah. There. Right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, the flannel graph. Wait, wait, wait. That's it was the like... clean shaven. Yeah, so two questions on that. Thank you, Tom. It's a great segue. So... I think the first question I had for you was, if you had to pick two guys out of the entire Bible to make an appearance, honestly, would you have picked Moses and Eliyahu? No. I think I would have chosen Moses because he's like 
the first redeemer. This is the last redeemer. I get that one. Elijah? I probably would have gone with David. David might have been good, right? So we got the prophet, the redeemer. We got the king. That would have been cool. It would have been nice to see how old he looked. (laughs) All right, so let's just name a couple things off the top of your head that would cause these two to be selected. Comments? Mr. Martin. Well, weren't... uh... Uh, these, these are the two messengers that are to be that are to come in anticipation of the kingdom coming, and uh, yeah, that, that was my connection. They they didn't recognize them visually; they recognized them from their teaching, thinking that this must be the kingdom. The kingdom must be coming. These are the two messengers that have that have come. Okay, I get that with Elijah, and I certainly get the Moses connection to Elijah based on our personal study which evidently is so long ago now that I don't even want to mention it on the tape. Um, I called it a tape, but it's really not. <laughs> so so I, I get that. I get the Elijah. Why would, why would we say Moses? I mean, does Moses have anything to do with going into... He wasn't even allowed to go into the land. So what's the deal there? Unless you're going to flip and go with something else, like a representative of the... Law yeah. and a representative of the prophets. There might be another one. I got you next. Yes. And Brock's over there too. Okay. Um, but I, to me, I think one of the things you, you jump with Moses is Moses and Elijah have an interesting scenario. We know that Moses dies. Right. But, but his experience is not unlike Elijah's. And right. that God takes him and buries him somewhere. And later on, we find that they're arguing. No, no, I want right, no, no, his body. Yes. Arguing over his body. But the point is, though, that like his death experience is not unlike Elijah's. We Tradition holds, according to Judaism, that Elijah dies, too, in his ascent to heaven. It doesn't say that he lives forever. So the point is, though, that, that what we're getting at is that both of them, essentially, the last we saw them, they were alive. Then they were gone. And it's kind of the similar, okay, a similar parallel good. there. I like that. What about Enoch? Well, right. But these two were, well, <laughs> suppose, depending on your traditions around Eliyahu... These two are Jewish representatives, whereas Enoch is in... Well, I don't know about that. Well, I would say you do have the concept of Moshe, who represents the Torah, and Eliyahu. Well, and prophets. Yeah. Prophets, so the Torah and the prophets give witness mm-hmm. to Good. Right. the Messiah. Right, and he is the prophet, Eliyahu Because you need Hanavi, two witnesses right? to establish mm-hmm. Right, and right. he is the lawgiver, so yeah, I get it. So, I like it. But they're... There's also... Take a deep Moses. breath, brother. Bring it home. Bring it home. <laughs> <laughs> Moses. No, they want you to speak up. They're asking you to speak up right now. I can tell. Moses represents uh, the Jewish people. And I'll throw out there that maybe Eliyahu represents the nations. Okay, or the the non-Jews. The non-Jews. Okay. Now why Which is why would you say Jew that? and Gentile? Sure, coming together. Coming together. In one in Messiah Yeshua. Correct. But why would you say Eliyahu? I mean, the best known prophet of Israel would possibly be associated with non-Jews. Because when Eliyahu is first introduced to us in the, in the Tanakh, which is 1 Kings chapter 17, if I'm not mistaken. You should check him on that whenever he does that. It says, um, it, it, the Hebrew, there's a play on the Hebrew, and it says, Eliyahu Hatishbi, 
Hatokshav, I think something. To the, I, yeah. I, I may have that not exactly right, but Tishbi and Tokshav are the same word in Hebrew, just different vowel pointers. Okay, same spelling. Right. Tokshav means a settler, meaning that Tishbi, he's a Tishbite. Tishbi is in in what was part of the ancient territorial lands of Joseph or. Ephraim, right, um, and he's a settler. I mean, he, he's not from he's he's not from there originally. Right. Almost like a sojourner, right? He's a sojourner mm-hmm. there. So there is discussion among the sages about what the actual um, ancestry of Elijah is. Yeah, some say, and and I think this is probably the. Uh, probably the most people hold to this view is that he is a priest. He's a he's a Levite um, because you know most of the great prophets were Levites. Not Absolutely. all, but most of sure. them were uh, Jeremiah. I think Isaiah. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so there's some opinions that say he was um, he was from Levi. There's some that say he was from Benjamin, and then there's some that say he was from, I want to say maybe, oh, maybe Ephraim. Uh, he was an Ephraimite. So, but the point is, they're really not sure. They're not sure who, who he, where he really comes from. So maybe, maybe he doesn't come from any of those tribes. And he's a Maybe he yeah. was a quote-unquote convert as it were right maybe he was a non-jew who chose to keep who, the who attached himself to israel. to israel yeah. right now that's a theory it's just another opinion like all the other opinions that are that are there but that to me that kind of would be that works nicely it kind of works nicely because not only do you have the torah and the prophets bearing witness to Messiah, but you also have a picture of Jew and Gentile coming to Mashiach. Yeah, I love it. So you and I studied Revelation and the two witnesses that are prevalent in that day. And uh, based on what they do, sends us back to say, well, these miracles were done by these two, and really only these two guys so they, if the two witnesses from John's apocalypse are in fact Moses and Elijah, then having them show up on the mountain sort of as a, you know, sitting with the quarterback and getting a little prep time for what's coming up could be something that, uh, that works as well. Yes, sir. On the terms of why would you pick El- Eliyahu? Yes, well, if I'm right, I don't believe that any other prophet would ever raise someone from the dead. Elisha. Elisha yeah, did Elisha afterwards, did. and that was, was part of, of part of getting the mantle and all of that. Might have been. Might have been so Elisha. Is it his connection that he and his disciple were the only ones to raise anyone from the dead? It's a nice save. It was quick. It was good. I like it. Yeah. Could be. It could be. I don't think Moses ever did, though, so, you know, now we're trying to put something... But I like it. I like it. By the way, just to add to 
my theory. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if if Eliyahu really is a a non-Jew originally who attaches himself, then what's interesting about that is who prepares the way for Messiah. Mm. It's a non-Jew. Yeah, don't don't say that outside this room because it's not going to get a whole lot of traction. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. Yes, sir. Um, well, so it's interesting that nothing really happens after this. Like this is a really, really huge deal. One would think immediately that the kingdom would have been coming back because of the association with the two, you know, the, the two messengers that are coming yeah. and everything like yeah. that. And it even says like, oh, they understood what he meant by this. Yeah. Was, you know, John the Baptist. Everything. But nothing really does Baptism. happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Presbyterian. Um, but it, I, but I think that's that's it, it's interesting, kind of going back to one of the comments that you made in an earlier class about like if they would have just been ready, it would have like that would have happened like yeah. right there. And I started wondering like, is this kind of one of these moments where we're supposed to recognize like things got like that very close? close. Like they literally showed up and were like, "Is it time?" And Yeshua was like. We're close, but not right now. I mean, just because, like, what, yeah. what else would explain such a weird, like, timing with this? And, like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, it's an interesting, it's it, interesting just tying that into it could be. What, point before. What caught me this reading was the Master's admonition in several of the Gospels to the three guys. On the way down, what does he say? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Until the Son of Man is raised. And to your point, maybe it's like, guys, I gave him every opportunity. The whole sign of Jonah thing, everything, blind people, leprosy, I did everything I could. And we're going to plan B. <laughs> you guys, back in the trunk. <laughs> don't tell anybody <laughs> until I raise from the dead. That works, right? Well, and I was also thinking because he he says that to them, like, don't tell anybody until I'm gone, like until that, I'm that, back. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that, it's, uh, it's like time oh, out, everybody timing. off the field. <laughs> oh, great timing. Um, that then, what's interesting about that though that that gives like so much more weight, oh, yeah. not that it needed anymore, but like so much more weight to the writings of Peter and John. Yeah. I mean, really, because like you, they they saw something that no one else saw. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that I would throw James, James in there too. James. But hey, you know, yeah. if you want to diss oh, the right. guy, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I like his book too. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know but you do. but it also says that uh, when he uh, when he tells them that the Son of Man has to be given over, killed, buried, and raised again, it says. They didn't understand what he. They they were troubled by the statement. Right. They and didn't they were get afraid it. to ask him more about right. it. But they didn't they did, get it. They didn't quite get it. All right. I'm with you. All right. So um, the whole greatest thing, greatest and least. So we got. Um, some of them don't do that. So. How do you think you're doing in the kingdom? I mean, I love to talk about that. What, what was the question? How do you think you're doing in the kingdom? Oh. You know, maybe, you know, Ben, how do you think your dad's doing in the kingdom? <laughs> you, come on, B plus, A minus. A- Give him a solid C. <laughs> Keep studying. I think my dad is um, B plus or... Doesn't everybody get an A? 
Well, yeah, I, I was grades, willing to give you the A. Everybody gets an A. <laughs> I thought it, I, I didn't think it was a grade. I thought it was it was like a line, and you know, you some. some oh, you're like I'm behind you. Well, not no. I, line. Well, you don't want to be in towards the front. It sounds like you're be towards the back. <laughs> I said the the greatest will be the okay. Yeah, okay. I, I would imagine I'm probably closer to the front than I would like to be, but you know, it's an interesting perspective. We don't like to talk about <laughs> how we're doing, but apparently they did. Yeah, and well, not too, not too. It's probably because we don't like talking about it. Yeah. We read the story. We read the story, right? That was rather uncomfortable. Oh, it man. seemed like it seemed that that more than anything else that Yeshua ever says is more of a direct. I don't. Um, it's more directed at his disciples than, than almost anything else because a lot of times he 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 teaches them something, but he's really teaching them so they can teach right. other people. But yeah, this, this seems more like a specific deal. Like, hey, yeah, guys. How would how would you summarize his? Admonition after he hears about this discussion. He's listening to it right now. <laughs> yeah. How would how would you summarize it? What was his bottom line? It's not a quiz, it's not a there's no trick question. How would I mean, you? be humble and, and serve others. Okay. Take the back seat. Be the deacon. Okay. Focus on the wrong thing. Focus on the you're focusing on the wrong thing. They were at that time. Okay. Well, it's a weak response, though, if you're not going to give us what we should be focusing on. Maybe focusing on others. Right. right. I was coming from the humility angle as yeah. well. And it's interesting that it comes right after a scene where we had the most... Extraordinary. Man, yeah. The most With humble them. man. In fact, both of them, right? Yeshua and Moses. True. Sure. Right? Yeah. Nice. Nice. That's good. That's good. All right. Which I think just speaks more, going back to what we were talking about earlier, this conversation, according to some Gospels, takes place after the Mount of Transfiguration, which to me is a perfectly appropriate time for that conversation to happen, if there's ever a time for that conversation to happen. Sure. Sure. Because, you know, Peter, James, and John are thinking to themselves, this hey, is it. We got to see this. I mean, this is we're about... The, we're the guys. He's going to be, you know, kicking out the Romans any day now. And, I mean, I want to get first dibs on yeah. that right-hand seat, just in case. I saw the back of that jersey. He took me up to the mountain. That's right. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. I, by the way, he took the brothers, but he also took me. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the interesting thing also mm -hmm. about the, that little account where he talks about first, we last, and so on. Yeah. He then immediately shifts gears... Slightly staying in the humility realm, but going to a different angle with talking about if you take care of a child in my name, right. then you'll receive a reward. Um, that whole concept is, is definitely a Jewish idea. You taking care of someone, first off, in someone else's name is like you like taking care of a disciple. Sure. But anytime we talk about, like you read the Pirkei Avot, the concept of providing for Torah scholars, providing for people of uh, in that type of category exactly. and their associates yep. is considered to be a bonus merit. Absolutely. So uh, it's not... Um, it's like caring for someone when they die, right? One of the highest myths. Right, but yeah. And here you've got, while they're still living, you know, so doing, a, doing it what's people. already a mitzvah, but doing it for a special kind of person makes yeah. it an even greater mitzvah. Exactly right. And so that, that idea is definitely in Jewish thought. So it's not so much a... It's not like there's some sort of weird... Christian idea of little ones come to me, oh, although yeah. that is also Yeshua's comment, sure. but it's more the idea that like, there is there is um, 
it is good to associate with the righteous and to bless them. And to bless them. And, I, you know, I would go back to the Shunammite woman we talked about last week, right? Right. I mean, what, what was the deal? He was passing by her house, and she always took care of him when he came by. And, hey, you know, let me help you out here. You're going to, you know, you're going to have a baby. Don't mess with me, prophet man. It is always fascinating to see that the most amazing and righteous people throughout scripture are usually the ones that start off by saying like no no no, i'm nothing don't pick me they're always like the humblest ones right and mm -hmm. and i think that's not a mistake and i think yeshua is definitely pointing to that here because like i mean you start in, i mean the, the his strong language in matthew is very unique to say that like you'll be the greatest if you're if you become converted like one of these little children like i don't know that that's just in my translation but i Morgan and I were talking about this recently because it's like, I think it's a great reminder for those of us that have children to see how quickly kids <laughs> grasp things. You know, like Yeshua's main like issue throughout all of this is that like, ah, oh, man, you've seen all these things. It keeps showing you these things and no one's believing. You don't believe me. You don't believe me. You don't believe me. And he says that like so many times. And, and it's just, it's amazing to see how quickly kids just latch onto it. How quickly right. kids believe. You see that with the disciples as well. They take up, you know, drop everything you're doing and follow me. They do immediately, like like little kids. Yeah. Or even with the feeding. Yeah. What do you got? What do you got? In the, what do you got there? Yeah. Two no, I know. And five you fish. see that so many yeah, times. It's work. like throw throw the net over on that side. Go go find a fish and check its mouth. Like all these random things, and they just do it immediately. And they do it. Yeah. No argument. Step out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. If it's really you. Let's, let's do this together. Before we get too far from the transfiguration, I just thought it was really interesting that that's Mount Hermon. I guess we agree that he was on Mount Hermon. Yes. Um, and Cindy and I enjoyed finding some interesting facts about Mount Hermon, that it's an early, they have an early warning station there for Israel to, with, with and, it's on, and it's at the border of Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. So right there at Syria, especially right now, you know, it's, yeah. it's an interesting thing. Um, we noticed that, uh, that Mount Hermon is covered with snow most of the year. That's true. But this would probably be the one part of the year where it probably didn't have any snow. Correct. So it'd be a lot easier to walk up there. Mm. The runoff uh, feeds the Jordan River, which is really cool. And um, makes the Galilee fertile. Yeah. And it has three peaks. You know, we've got Yeshua, Moses, and Elijah up there. The mountain has three peaks. Nice. Nice. Cool stuff. Thank you. All right. Yes, sir. Uh, backing up on what Mr. Gregory said about uh, how kids latch on to things mm -hmm. more easily than uh, grown ups, as we could say at this point. Um, I had. A, Hmm. Uh, it wasn't easy for me to actually adjust to uh, reading the Bible as much as I do now. Mm -hmm. And I really regret not actually starting when I was younger. Like Mr. Gregory said, how, he's, how kids latch on to things more easily. And also, after, I think it was, I think before I started coming to, men, to this class, I actually had a couple of, had, I just had some very impacting experiences uh, with God uh, a couple times. It was really cool. And now I'm really more, I'm really appreciating the life that I have right now. Praise God. That's a great blessing to hear. And uh, praise God that you're able to say that at your age. Because we have men that come to this class 
that are my age and are lamenting the fact that they just started. So it is a lifelong study. It's just not possible to get it all in the first reading or even the second reading, which brings up uh, uh, an interesting thing about how long the master spent time with his disciples. How long was it? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. So I'm going to need your help here, but how long does it take us to read through the Torah? You can round. How long does the Torah cycle? How long does the Torah cycle take? One year. Today. But it wasn't that way in the Master's day. Even today, there's another cycle. What's the other cycle they've got? Three years. The three years, right? Mm -hmm. So each time they go through, they read one third of the portion. And then the next year, they read the second third. And then the next year, they read the third third. What do they do in the Master's Day? Master's Day was a three and a half year cycle, so that in seven years, you went through the Torah twice. So, it's fact, so essentially, his ministry was long enough to take his disciples through the Torah once to show them and teach them during each portion. Right. Hmm. And if you're if you're looking at where Andrew is called and you know he's talks about the ladder and stuff, you've got to believe that that's the portion that they were going through. Very cool stuff. Huh. Very cool. I wonder what he was teaching when he was like twelve. Hanging yeah. out with uh, yeah, the Yeah, hanging out with Hillel. Shema. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you read from John 7 all the way through John 10, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Yes, sir. I wanted to quickly, before we go into John, which I think is at the end of your lesson, um, yes. wanted to touch on your question about setting his face to Jerusalem. Did I miss that? Where is that? I think that was... That was question number six in the review. That was six in the review. We didn't get to the review oh, yet, John. So hang on. I want to talk about that one. I got that at the end specifically so that we can close with that. All right, so those three chapters. How many of you actually took my advice and read all of that in one sitting? Is that moving or what? I felt like he was sitting right there on the couch with me and going through it, and you're like, wow. What was your response? How did you feel about this? Did you learn anything? Did you see anything for the first time? Or what? It was all just, no, oh, I heard that stuff before. It's all the stuff in red. Is yours red? <coughs> is it? Do you have a red letter Bible? Or is it not red? You know what a red letter Bible is? Yeah. In a red letter Bible, everything that the master says is in red. Mr. Spurlock says his whole Bible is red, <laughs> which makes sense. <laughs> Anything special jumped out? If not, that's okay. Yeah, we'll move on. I, yes? For some reason, it, it stood out to me how many times it feels like in John that he keeps referencing, like, and you're trying to kill me. And you're trying to kill me. Like, he keeps saying that he over was, and over again. He was pressing on that a little he was bit. Really pressing like, that. Okay, so, and I think at well, one what point you, they said, what like, you, who's trying to kill what you? What are you stoning me for? I mean, is, is it, for what, what, what miracle did I do that you want to stone me for? This well, it was, it was interesting because it was almost like he was anticipating... What 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 the was going to be the reaction be... at the the last thing that he said? Yeah. Not all the stuff leading up to it, because of the stuff leading up to, it, you're like, 
I don't know if that's worthy of killing him. And then it's like, I and the father are one. They're like, all right, wait a second. Got the stones. <laughs> it's like, wait, I told you. I, you know, like, yeah. I've said this before. Why are you mad? Yeah, why are you mad? But yeah. man, he, that's quite the zinger that he uh, throws right back. Well, yeah, it is. It is that. One thing that jumped out at me when I read through this, seven John seven thirty five. the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go? This is when he said, you'll seek me, but you won't, you won't be able to find where I'm going, you can't go. And uh, they say, um, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's is not, he not intending go to go to dispersion the among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? You know, I'm on, we're on that this morning. We're talking about that. So, this, this, the, the, the nature of their question gives us an insight to the view of Gentiles being taught Torah. Yeah. And it was we don't something do we don't do. Right. Now, that makes sense because remember, at this time, if you were a Gentile, you're pagan. True. Right? There, there were no other monotheistic <laughs> religions. And um, and yeah, you 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 can't teach the Torah to idolaters, which, by the way, today under Jewish law, it's what's interesting is um, when you when Judaism looks at Christianity and Islam, a Jew can enter a, a mosque no problem because Judaism says Islam is truly not a religion, an idolatrous religion. But a Jew is not really supposed to go into a church. Especially a Catholic church. Especially a Catholic or a Greek Orthodox church. Yeah, the old, that old statues thing. and there's images. Yeah. And, okay. But today, Judaism does have a, does allow you to potentially teach Torah to a Christian because the Christian accepts the Tanakh as, as, as authoritative. <clears throat> right. But you can't teach Torah to a Muslim because a Muslim does not accept the Tanakh as authoritative. In fact, they, they say that the Jews really, yeah, really it up. manipulated and messed up the real, right. the real scripture. Yeah, went with Isaac so instead of Ishmael. If you teach Torah to a Muslim, he's just going to try to use it against you. But a Christian, you could teach them Torah, but you can't. You can't go in there. No, no, don't go in. Their place of worship, because they might, sort of, maybe, be an idolater. Yeah, it's uh, it is an interesting dichotomy that that's come up with it. So, cool. Yes, sir. Um, I was thinking I was in Yosemite. Was it wait? Was this a full sentence? Because I missed the beginning of this already. In Yosemite. I found it interesting when they brought the adult adultery to test Yeshua, and he just said, "Who among you is innocent of transgression? Let him cast the first stone at her." Right. And they just left. Which would that be that Yeshua? When they tested him to see if he was going to prevent them from stoning her, would that be that they prevented? Would that be something against him, or was that just their own fault? 
Are you asking why did they why did they drop their stones? I'm asking if that testing was their own fault for not stoning them, or if it was, or if that was something that they could hold against them. Did, they definitely were the trying to get to catch him. <coughs> okay, so what was the trap? If he, like he, if he had, if he had said something that would have prevent, that would have stopped them from stoning. Well, let's make it easier. So it's, what was the choice he had? They say she was caught in the, in the adultery. The law says should be she should be stoned. What do you say? He's got two choices. Stone her. Or spare her. spare her, stone her. I like that. Instead of not so spare her. Okay. Stone or spare. I like it. So which one did he choose? Spare. No. I don't know. Nope. He chose neither. Didn't. He well, didn't choose either one, did he? Oh, but why? So what did he do to get out of this trap? Why would they just walk away and not say, wait a second? You cheated! You didn't choose one or the other! What did he do? He set an example, didn't he? Did he set an example? I think he followed an example. You're last. What did he do? What was his what was his tactic? Tell me what he did. Don't tell me why he did it. Just tell me what did he do? You remember the story? Yes. What did he do? Did he stand up and do jumping jacks? No. Did he wash dishes? No. Did he sing a song? No. What did he do? He gave an example. He asked them if they were <coughs> Dang it. Okay, he didn't really ask that. What did he do? What was his activity? What did he do? He asked them. <laughs> what did he do? Open your Bible, read the script. What does he say? What did he do? He wrote something in the dirt. He wrote something in the dirt. We didn't even know what it right? was. We don't know what he wrote, but he wrote something in the dirt. With the finger of God. But, but, I but, but, but I do want to... It was actually the hand of Mel Gibson. No. <laughs> the theory of what the test is here, because the question is, what's the track? Because realistically, if you look at it, it almost looks more like a quiz than necessarily a, a trap. I mean... There's a right answer, there's a wrong answer, supposedly. And so it should be fairly easy. Okay, if she's guilty, she's guilty. If she's not, she's not. The problem is that the time frame has... Uh, there, there's a complication. And I think the trap here is the same one they try to do with the taxes question that comes up in another gospel. Do we give taxes to Caesar or not? Right. Because, see, at this time, it was illegal to kill someone under Roman occupation. They had to take him to a Roman court type system. This is what we ran into with Yeshua, sure. with the uh, with the the Sanhedrin. So, but, but I don't think I don't think that's where they're going. James. No, but I think that, that I think there's an element of that here, saying we caught this woman in adultery. You should. It, the Torah says we should stone her. Forget the Romans. What do we do right now? Almost like this. I don't, I don't are you willing so. to flaunt the Roman rule to do the strict approach I, of the Torah? I I hear you, and it's plausible. But I don't think that is what's going on. Okay, so he says. I see you. Who, okay, so he says, "Who among you is is there a transgression? Let me cast the first stone at her." That is the question that he asked that made everybody just walk away. Okay. Because if okay, so that's not, not, that's but not that's, what made him walk away. But uh, it's what well, he did that it's, made him walk away. 
Well, I'm thinking. So, um, so okay. let's 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 cut to the chase. Okay, so we'll we'll talk through it. Okay, so let's be clear about what happened. We found this woman caught in the very act of adultery. The Torah says she should be stoned. What do you say? We already see. If he says yes, she should be stoned, got a problem. No, she shouldn't be stoned, we got a problem. Neither. Neither doesn't seem to be a choice. So he then writes in the dirt, makes a statement, writes in the dirt again, and everybody walks away. They put the rocks down and they walk away. What is he actually doing? And it is what the Sanhedrin did on a regular basis, and he simply followed the example that had already been set. The, ta- the Talmud says that if a Sanhedrin puts a person to death, even one person, they are so far beyond any Sanhedrin before them. It just wasn't done. What was the regular routine? What did they try to do? Always. Disqualify, Disqualify the, witnesses. the witnesses. They try to find some kind of loophole to get the person out of it because... The Torah's job, if you will, is repentance, not repercussion. So, what's the problem if I tell you that we found a woman caught in the act, the very act of adultery? What's the problem? If you caught her, you caught him. If you didn't catch my phone, you're going to catch all kinds of unholy grief. Exactly. Adultery, perhaps you've heard the, the phrase, it takes two to tango, perhaps not. <laughs> if a woman is caught in the act of adultery, there had to be a man there, yes? Mm. Yeah, just say yes. For now, come back and see me in ten years, right? Yes. So how can you catch a woman in the very act of committing adultery? You can't. You can't. You have to catch a man and a woman. You have to catch two people. What they give him? One. One. What do we have for the losers? You can't stone the woman. Where's the witness? That's another thing. Wait a second. She was caught in the act of adultery? Who are the witnesses? Everyone. All of you guys? Because who's supposed to cast the first stone? The witness. The witness! Because you have to have two or three to put someone to death. So what's the problem, ultimately, legally? There's no witnesses. There's no case. They got no case. Now for the mystical side of our portion. <laughs> <laughs> it's not mystical, but it is. It is pretty cool. <laughs> but but wait, before you before you go, yeah. are you guys clear on the legal thing? Yeah. I'm bringing you a half baked case, and I want you to draw a verdict. It's no case. You can't catch a woman in adultery. You have to catch two people. You got to catch two people in adultery. You didn't bring me two people. Got to have witnesses. You didn't bring me any witnesses. You guys all want to stone her right now? And the other legal issue there is if you falsely accuse someone, then the judgment that they would have gotten... You're supposed to get. You're now supposed to get. So if you, if you, if you, carry, if you play this out and you continue to make this accusation and you're doing it falsely and you're going to stone her to death, you have just sealed your own fate. You are on your way out. Okay. All right, so, good. So he's calling their bluff on this, and he wins. 
But what's interesting is, you know, there's a lot, of, been a lot of speculation about, well, what exactly was he, you know, was he just like drawing pictures in the sand? You know, what was he doing when he was writing? Building a sandcastle. And <laughs> the first question is, where does this event take place? Where does it take place? What does the Mount of Olives? No, he was on the Mount of Olives oh, that night. Oh, in the temple. Sorry. Okay, so he, he, he the temple, the courtyard. Right. So he was. So chapter seven. Where does chapter seven take place? Yeah, I'd have to look. That's the. He's in the temple. It's the last days of Coke. Right. Right. It's the, uh, the water libation. Right. And then he and then he goes. He spends the night on the Mount of Olives. Right. And then the next morning he gets up and he goes back into the temple. And they bring him this woman caught in adultery. So he's standing in the courtyard of the temple. What day? What day is this now? Shemitzer. The eighth day. It's the eighth day. Okay. Now, there was a. So we, the day before we had this water libation ceremony, which was the culmination of the seven days of Sukkot. It was like the big deal. It was the big kind of grand finale. Okay. And according to some, there was a there was a there was certain passages and certain teachings during this time that had to that focused on water because of the connection to the water libation ceremony. Sure. One of those passages, according to some, is a passage from um, uh, from Jeremiah chapter 17 and it, I'll pick up in verse 12 um, a glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary where are we at? right there in the temple we're in the temple we're in the sanctuary verse 13 O Lord hope of Israel all who forsake you will be put to shame those who turn away uh, those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even Yudke Vavke. There's there's a there's like a double whammy here because yeah. they probably had been studying this passage because of the time of year. Right, right. And now he is acting out this passage. In the temple, in the sanctuary, right, right he's writing the their names on the on the dirt on the temple floor or courtyard floor, because they have forsaken their God yeah. by what they're doing. And the previous day, he had caused this huge ruckus because he stood up in the middle of the libation ceremony and said, "I am the source of living water." Yeah. Nice. So he is like it's. I mean, I'd, I'd pick up my marbles and leave, too. I, I, mean, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? That's right? it. That's it. So. That's good. I hadn't heard it uh, tied to the Jeremiah 17. That's good. All right, I got you, then I got him. Oh, just to Joshua's point before, like I, I do think that they're, they were attempting to see if he would kind of break the Torah. Absolutely. But in fact... He did the very. He he actually upheld the Torah he did. more legitimately than they had Absolutely. even anticipated. And, and oddly, oh, hey, hey. there oh, he oh, is, oh, oh, McDonald. Yeah, grab your chair there, bud. Hey, do you know David McDonald? You'll meet him afterwards. 
he normally is on the other end of the camera. Watching. I was going to say, it's kind of a twilight zone. But do 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 do. Everyone who's normally at the end of the camera is about to walk <laughs> well, He's not on the camera, so is he really here? Is he right? Yeah, right, right. Could be a hologram. Impasto. <laughs> but, so, those that, many that are in the visible representation of the church have been taught that the Torah is no longer applicable in our lives. And... Yeshua, in letting this adulterer off, is basically proving that. See, it doesn't matter anymore. What matters now is forgiveness and going and sinning no more. What's the problem with that? Top of your head, a couple, real quick. What's the problem with that? The problem with sinning no more? Oh, no, no. (laughs) The problem with Yeshua saying... We're implying that the Torah law doesn't matter anymore. What matters is forgiveness. Well, it makes him a false prophet. It makes him a false prophet. Why is that? Well, because Deuteronomy makes it clear that if you come teaching another religion... Boom! You're done. Doesn't matter what miracles you do. That's right. Back into Deuteronomy 12, beginning of Deuteronomy 13. Did you have one? You got that one? Forgiveness, mercy, all of those things are in the Torah. That's right. So that's where we. That's, would, that's right. Where they would even. And you wouldn't need forgiveness with. of sin unless you knew what sin was. And this Torah teaches us what right. sin is. Good. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, we got there by applying Torah principles. Exactly. Exactly right. So. And, and to that point, I think there's another, there's another cool angle to this story. And that is, there is another way, because you mentioned the man's not there. Right. So there seems to be an issue with witnesses with this act of adultery, even though she was caught in the act. Um, there is a way that you judge a single woman for a assumed act of adultery right. without knowing for certain, without no witnesses who see mm-hmm. her. And that is, numbers, you take her to the priest in the tabernacle, or in this case it would be the temple, you pick up dirt from the floor... You put it in this special little solution, including right, wiping off the ink from a, the verse that this is from. Which has the Lord's name in which it. Which has too. God's name in it, which is a big deal. And then she is given the opportunity to either say, yeah, I did do it, and I was wrong, and I repent, and now my husband can divorce me, whatever yeah. else. Or if she maintains her innocence, she drinks the solution, and if she's guilty, she dies. If she's not guilty... Her, her thigh, kind of. Well, she dies a very gruesome, disturbing it's, death. It's bad. It's one of those Indiana Jones yeah. kind of things, you know. But uh, but the husband has to bring that to bear. Yeah, that's and the husband doesn't bring this. But, but well, I guess my point though is that I feel like Yeshua may also be alluding in addition to the Jeremiah passage. I think he's also making a point there. I think it's a double, a double piece double. here, almost to say like, look, you guys not only are you are you mishandling the the cotton adultery approach because yeah. we're the witnesses, but on top of that. Guy. If the, if this is even a situation where you're like, well, we only saw two people come out of that house, so obviously we know something was going on. Yeah. This is not how you do that. That's right. You're There's exactly another process right. yes. that we do. The Torah describes which, a different way. And so I think he's alluding to that to emphasize that they have, again, they've missed what is supposed to happen here. So, it, to, I mean, to, it's almost like the, the Talmud kind of approach to it. This is really a brilliant Response to this no question, question. Yeah. because he manages to um, essentially reframe the question. He actually takes their question and throws it out the window and comes right back with a brand new one. Exactly right. And, and I, don't, really I don't think for a second they didn't know what the right procedure was. Oh, no, oh, yeah. of course. Like they know what yeah. the right procedure is. 
they are they, this is tr- truly they're trying to set him up to see that if he, he says if he says Moses doesn't say to stone her up oh, he's not teaching the Torah that's right he's false prophet if he says to stone her well that's also they, not they the got Torah, him yeah right either way they've got him. so and his, his answer is, is beautiful yeah. quite frankly if you if you go down the path you're going with the um, uh, what, what's that water called? The water, bitter waters of yeah, Sota. Sota. What's yeah. What? yeah? If you go down that route, the missing player is the husband. Again, right. so we're and, the guy is and, missing. Again. Right, the guy is missing, but it's the husband. Yeah, and, right. But in this case, if they are collectively the bride, then the one that's missing in this, which is what he's pointing out in their hearts, is Elohim, is God Himself. Hmm. The husband's mistake. Well, and it's interesting that, of course, the story ends. And going back to the Sotas account, he tells her, go and sin no more, which is, in effect, essentially what the Sota experience is trying to get at. Right. It's a threat of death unless you're willing to take responsibility and repent, really. Yeah. And so it's, a, I mean, the, the end result is almost the same. Um, I know Brock has a question, but one thing that I was, that we talked about last night, Julianne and I, it says that the they leave starting with the older ones. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Oh, I got that one nailed. Only because I'm old. Right. We'll <laughs> come back to it in a second. Some of what Josh is saying is almost as if the the people bringing the, the woman to Yeshua expected him not to know what the Torah says about you know uh, convict. I think they didn't adultery. because just previously in the chapter before, everyone's going, "Where did he learn all this?" Well, well that, no, that, that's exactly where I'm going because they said. Messiah can't come from the Galilee, like, and and they even said they even they even accused Nicodemus later, like, when he tried to defend him, he's like, "Where are you from? The Galilee?" It's like there's this like, you know, uh, stigma, stigma yeah. associated like, with yeah, being from the Galilee, yeah. being from Galilee, which he wasn't from the Galilee. But it was it was interesting it, that that actually jumped out to me um, that there was such a stigma attached to it, and that people didn't know that he was actually born in uh, Bethlehem. Yeah. And it was an interesting, it was, it was an interesting contrast between that and what, what we all know now is common knowledge. Like, of course, you're shooting all these things, exactly. and blah, 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 so on and so forth. But the masses at the time, especially in, in these couple of chapters, they didn't seem to know a lot of what we take for granted. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's almost like I'm following the, the crowd. Right. You know, everybody's buying an iPhone. Which, I got which, which is interesting when you, just, when you compare that to, you know, for example, this past election season. And hmm. like all, all the things are said about one candidate versus the other, and like what the, what, what this crowd's saying, what the other crowd, what the other crowd's saying, and then to read to read this chapter, you know, in in, in a block, and and see kind of what the, a lot of right. the whole mentality yeah. of the crowd. Was, but you, you, good. you could legit, you could argue that the the Pharisees' question here is a legitimate one, that their test of Yeshua is. Um, not, I mean, you could argue that it's strictly to try to trap him, and it's totally nefarious. You could also argue that he's putting himself out there as potentially the Messiah, and they kind of need to make sure that he is worthy of that title. Yeah. Since they, as yeah. going back, we're talking about Rock, they don't know. I think that comes after the cult. I, I think that the, yeah. you know, if we look at the whole Passover experience, we're to bring that lamb into mm-hmm. the house. You know, and you've got four days, you know, to examine it and so forth. And I think that's exactly what they did. He went into the house and was there teaching for four days. And it says, after that point, 
no one wanted to ask him any more questions, and they were satisfied that he was without blemish. And I, I, I think that's where that happened. Here, um, who's supposed to be the wise ones in a group of people? The older, ones. the older ones, the guys with the gray hair. So it's not surprising to me that the older ones wised up first, dropped their stones, and walked away. Well, that was my thought, too. Juliana had a different angle. She, her translation said starting with the eldest, as though it was like the oldest person there, and then moving down in chronological order. She was wondering if there was some sort of like allusion here to the story of Joseph, how he kind of knows their, their ages. I don't know. It's clever. It's an clever. interesting okay. side point. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, I I looked up the word old, and it means old. You know, so it's interesting that like who who is left there right after that? It says then Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, "I am the light of the world." It's like everybody everybody left. So mm. I guess who's the everybody? Well, the ones that were accusing her. So the exactly. ones left over. You don't think there wasn't a crowd? Yeah, well, it started I, with a crowd, I, so, yeah, so I, I think guess there was, there was a, crowd. A, a smaller group that they were throw her in the ground in front of the crowd, kind of parts, yeah, you know. Mel Gibson puts his finger in the dirt. <laughs> oh, I just for another little slide in on the here we go. little mysticism. Okay, uh, there I, were no numbers I, in here. There was I, no I, numbers I, in the whole thing. Ani or Halam, or Halam, the Gematria of Or Halam is three hundred fifty-eight. Okay, it's also the Gematria of Mashiach. Okay. Wow. That's scary. Actually. It's scary that you know that. It's cool. It is cool. It is cool. All right. I never noticed how much the narrative in, in these chapters of John flows. Yeah. Before I think in the that's past, why I wanted you to read all in one sitting like that to just experience it. Because even though there's, there's multiple stories here, some of the gospels have almost a disjointed feel to it, where Good. it's like we have no. How did we get from here to here? John almost painstakingly includes. Transitions. I mean, yeah. it's like, and they were walking here, and he left. They came back, yeah. and, and then Mark does just the opposite. With and immediately this happens, and then this happens. You yeah. know, so he's whipping around with the video camera. Remember, John's got half of his gospel devoted to this period of time, and it does flow, I think, much much better than the rest. And interestingly enough, we have to keep in mind the time frame appears to be in John of when this is occurring. This is Sukkot, but it looks like based on the chronology and the fact that you mentioned he spent so much time in that last week. That is the Sukkot six months before he dies. I think that's true. So this is the last Sukkot that he's there for. Yeah. So this, there's significance fact, going on here. This would be the end of the third year, and now you've got that half year we just talked about to finish out the Torah. Because then you, we have that reference, which we haven't gotten to yet, we're going to, where he's in the temple for the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. Right. Which is in between right. Sukkot and Pesach. So which is this, coming up. This whole exchange, this experience, this, these sermons that Yeshua is preaching, where he suddenly seems to be really up in the ante on what he's saying, yeah. it, and even, even some of the miracles he's doing seem to be greater than before. Yeah, almost like he's pressing it more and more and it, more. He's at the end. This is the final push. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump down here. I like question two, um, John 7.35. Does he intend to teach the Greeks? So we're reading this with an eye for how does he treat the non-Jews? And as Greg has pointed out, it appears that that would be problematic, that he would be teaching the Torah to non-Jews. I mean, holy cow, he's not really going to do that, is he? So how does that make you feel? 
Aren't we non-Jews? We are the non-Jews, yes. I think we're all in that category. Some of us are U.S. non-Jews, some of us are Canadian non-Jews, but we're all, as far as I can tell, we're all non-Jews. Some are bearded, some are not. <laughs> my, my translation says no. the, the dispersion, similar to what Mr. Upham was saying, which made me think that it's like, it's the non-Jews that aren't hanging out with us, that aren't like the the woman who says, like, you guys are... You know, basically saying like I'm willing to take whatever I can get from the Jews yeah, because yeah. of how important the Jews okay. are to me. So, so there's like beyond, yeah, like further they're, away. They're, yeah, they're the ones that. How would that, you describe them biblically? Um, outcast hmm. Greeks, exile. Greeks that people don't want to mess What's with that? anymore. Exile. Exile. Well, they weren't exiled. They're not Jews. That's what I say. I think the reference to the dispersion is referencing the place, the not the people. He's working with the diaspora, meaning outside. the exile of Israel, okay. meaning not inside the land. Okay. So, which is interesting because last week or two weeks ago, there's a really weird reference with the demoniac and the, the pigs, that whole story, where he says, one gospel says, are you going to cast us into the abyss? Right. And then he says, no, 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 we'll cast, cast us in the pigs instead. The other gospel says, are you going to cast us out of this country, which is kind of weird. There seems to be this odd parallel between the land of Israel being the place to be right. and, and outside not. the land of Israel is like yeah. the abyss. It's like, that's like who wants to be there? Yeah. And it almost kind of is alluded to here, the same idea. Like, why would you go to the diaspora? Why would you go to the galut, the exile, right. when you could be here? So obviously, if he's going out to the exile, well, we're not going to go with him. Alright, so who were... The people in the diaspora at this point? Well, historically, not the Jews, because at that point they were still in the land. They not the Hebrews, right? The right. Hebrews. Who were they? Who asked for the Septuagint? Well, it was the. You had, you had, you had two communities still. You still had a huge contingent in, of, of Jews in Babylon and you know, ancient Babylon, exactly. Persia. And, and you have another huge contingent in um, in Alexandria, in Egypt, which is now part of the Greek, you know, um, the Greek Empire. Right. So you could interpret when I read it, it you know, my, this translation, which is uh, which is New American Standard, is he not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Which that phrase would kind of lead you to believe: Is he going to go teach the Jews in the exile? Right. Right. So does but he then it says and teach the Greeks? Right. So Greeks is in there. I mean, I looked at the the Greek <laughs> for the Greek. Well, it's all yeah. to me. But. So it's I know it's all Greek to you. Um, so does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Means just that. He's going to teach non-Jews. Where he's going to teach them would be a place that he would no doubt be welcome, because he would be among the dispersion, the Jews, Hellenist Jews, no doubt, that aren't really good with Hebrew and have already asked for the the um, Tanakh to be translated for them. But it seems clear, if we go back to the original Greek, he is going to be teaching non-Jews. And they're flabbergasted. How does that make you feel? Does that come from the statement, where I am, you cannot come? Yes. Because you won't be... You would Where does this man well, intend to go that we will not find him? Well, so they misunderstand his statement altogether. Sure, but their but their their interpretation of his statement 
is that he's going to go to he's going to go to the ex into the exile and start teaching non-Jews. Maybe, maybe teach Hellenistic Jews, Jews too. Jews, but sure. he, he's going to teach non-Jews. He could be dwelling with people that we don't dwell with. Right. And and but to your question, uh, no, Yeshua is not going to do that. He he has never intended in this in, in the three and a half years. In this well, in the Thirty-six years that he walked the planet, he never intended to teach non-Jews. Agreed, and I, I, I want us, I got you. I want us to make sure we make a note of that and write that down. That's important because I, I was raised in the Methodist Church, and then later in the Baptist Church, and then even later in the Presbyterian Church, and then later in the interdenominational Church that we were special, that we were chosen, that we were important, that we were specifically gifted of God. And that may or may not be true, but at least during this time, there's no question that was not the plan. And it is but the grace of God and His plan that His people would be blinded by Him that we might have the opportunity. And I think we do a great disservice to the grace of God by not recognizing that had he not blinded his own people, we would be lost. So far off. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Somebody say amen. 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 When you ask, how does that make me feel? It, it really makes me feel that much more appreciative of the Jewish people, like and the, and how important it is to maintain a connection with them, because what we've seen with that the response from from that the uh, the other woman like that, basically like how you treat the Jews, like how you see the Jews, is very very important to Yeshua Amen. and very very important to Hashem. <laughs> and whenever he talks about these little ones or his brothers. And doing it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. We need to remember, he's not talking about Christians. Right. He's talking about his flesh and blood. All right, I have to move quickly. My alarm is about to go off. In John 8, he unequivocally, unequivocally, unequivocally identifies himself. How does he do so? In John 8? By saying... I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not be left in darkness. He says I am multiple times. He does say that multiple times. More importantly, I mean, regardless of how you interpret I am, and if it's supposed to be an allusion to I am right. or not, right. um, or if he's supposed to be simply saying I am the Messiah, he references himself as being older than Abraham. Correct. Which is, at the very minimum, a very mystical statement that alludes to a pretty um, impressive messianic figure. Um, at, a, at a broader level, it starts to kind of call into question who is he really saying he is. And if you tie that into the I and the Father are one comments, I mean, it really starts... Should be no doubt. He's, he seems, right. he, he's definitely getting as close to saying, I'm God, without saying, I'm God. And he almost said, I'm God. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I mean, he's... He's giving us the, the, the very definition of what we had at the very beginning of this deal. 
only trouble with the Apple Watch is you have to have your glasses on to see what it's trying to tell you. Um, so we talked about him in the very beginning. John saying he's the visible representation of the Holy One, blessed is he, that we can interact with. And he's actually describing himself that way. If you've seen me, you've seen him. We are one. We're the same. But his comment about Abraham is, to me, is the slam dunk. And you know, every time he comes up with one of these things, and they pick up stones, mark it down. Mm -hmm. Whether you understand it or not, he just blasphemed in their minds. Mm -hmm. And if he blasphemed, that's English for him saying he is God. Right. The argument that he never said that... Actually, it's not so much that you could you could say he never said it because explicitly you could argue he never you said could argue. it. But it's quite obvious from the reaction what they thought <laughs> they he thought said. he said. Yeah, and no he question. does not correct them. That's right. At least not 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 most. Of the That's time. exactly that right. one reference report plays with them, but That's right. most of the time he goes ahead and lets them assume exactly what they were thinking. Yeah, he lets them go. Although. Um, when they explicitly ask him, right, I mean, verse 33, the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Damn. Yeshua answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You're all, you're all gods. So, there's an interesting, there's, that was, that's an interesting place to go. Because he, here they've made the they they brought the explicit right. thing. And then you're saying you're God. And we're gonna stone. And his you response it. is you're all gods. Which That's is, what he quotes. No question. And it is a very um, Hasidic understanding of that divinity within us and how God took of himself and put his spirit in us and all that. I get it, but we don't have time in the last nine minutes to talk about that. Well, and he's sort of, he sort of dismissive, I think, using that, because you can really take that and run with it in oh, a lot yeah. of different directions, but on the surface, he sort of tries to just say, like, it's not in the title. Like, don't get caught up in the title. What you should be paying attention to are the works. Like, these are the works of Hashem. Like, right. stop getting caught up in whether or not I'm saying I'm God or not. Like, that, that, which is why he, that's exactly where he goes. He says, like, even if you don't believe me, at least believe the works. The works, exactly. Because that's, that's the point. And that's what the Torah says. The works are the key, provided the teaching is consistent with the Torah. And he's definitely consistent with the Torah. Yeah, I think that this is such a good thing to keep in mind for people, like for when we're interacting with people that, that don't believe in Yeshua. It's like Yeshua is consistently saying to, to as an argument, like, look, this whole time I've only been glorifying the Father. Isn't yeah. that like what, that's what we're all trying to do. Like, right. Every time they try to say, like, you're trying to do this and you're trying to do that, it's like, I'm only glorifying the Father. I'm only bringing honor I'm to the Father. I'm only saying what he told me to say. I'm, I'm only, only doing what he told me to do. Yeah, constantly yeah, reverting the glory from himself and pointing it back toward Hashem. Amen. Yeah, he would have started a riot if he said, yes, it's exactly what I'm saying. And it's possible that... Is this, is this the time where he just went and was gone? Kind of passed uh, through their midst? Uh, I love when he does that, you know? Slipped in their hands. Do, 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 but I'm just saying that, like, like the first is Zion's yeah, argument for why he repeatedly seems to tell people, don't tell yeah. anyone what just happened to you, yeah. is that he recognizes that if he is 
out, outed as Messiah, there's going to be a war with Rome. There's going to be a rush. You bet. But it's certainly better if they out him than he outs himself. True. And so I just think that, like, I'm just saying, I don't know that you can necessarily run with the... I disagree with those who would say you could take this verse and say the issue is denying that he's God. I think he's simply saying... I'm not saying saying you're saying God, God, but I just think when they asked the question... That was as they asked of, Elijah of all, earlier. Of, of all the different, you know, possible things he could have said, he quotes that verse. Yeah, that is. I'm not sure I understand. Yeah, it's an amazing response, as he normally is amazing. For tonight, we'll just say this: whether he says he's God or not, I think the our response to someone who says he never said he was God is. What did the Jews think he was saying? Several times they accused him of blasphemy. They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he made himself out to be God and ultimately they killed him for that very thing. If he didn't say he was God or he wasn't claiming to be God, he wouldn't be dead. I think the mistake people make when they ask that question that we can make too if we're not look, if, if, when, when we're reading the uh, apostolic scripture. Right? I was trying to remember. Or apostolic <laughs> Nazarene, <laughs> Nazarene Nazarene so yeah. I was trying to remember. Yeah. That. <laughs> Is that you can't really read it without almost reading the Torah right next to it because right. there's so much that's a call. Every almost everything out the of his mouth back. is a, a call back. Yeah. Even something as simple as what, a lot of what we just discussed. Right. And and when people ask a question. It's like, did you read the Torah? Like, yeah. can I just look, look at it? Yeah. And, and I think sometimes even we make that mistake. Absolutely. That's why we're having Absolutely. to study. You bet. Because we, we're coming at it with Gentile minds, non-Jewish perspective, having not grown up in the Torah. Can you name all the birds in the Torah? In order of appearance? No. Yeah, me neither. Okay. We'll talk about what that's about later. All right, got to move forward. Quickly, uh, Yeshua heals a man who had been born blind. Never been done before, ever. They say to the guy who had been healed, who can now tell that their neckties are crooked for the first time, um, you were born utterly in sin, and you're trying to teach us. Why would they say something like that? Uh, because usually when you sin, you get punished with some sort of... Okay, so you're thinking both his parents were in some way sinners and therefore he was the result of that? Uh, no, actually. It was, no? The, the parents couldn't have sinned. It, it was just, um, it, was, it said that um, the man was actually, uh, was supposed to show the power of God. It said, it said. No, no, I get the right answer. I'm wondering why they thought that. Why did they have that oh, perspective? Okay. Even if they didn't truly believe it. Okay. Where were they coming from? He's got it. That sin sin causes sickness. sickness. Sin results in sickness and death. And if you were born blind, man, that's really bad. So it must have been utterly sinful somehow or another. Okay. What was the uh, what was the blind man's bottom line about who Yeshua was? 
I don't know if he's a, you know, I don't know if he's a blasphemer or not, but this I know. I used to not be able to see, and now, now I, see. I can see. And yeah, yeah. and, and I, I think he has such a great logic argument here. <laughs> just being like, I mean, if this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. Which is like, that is so logical, because well, they're, they're what, the ones that what's are always he pointing saying at? what God can do. What's he pointing at? What Yeshua did, which right. is your point a minute ago. And, and, and don't, the, don't get hung up on the title. And the Pharisees are questioning him. Yeah. Like, really? Did you weren't really, really were you really that? born blind? Where are your parents? Can they yeah, they yeah, recognize right. that, he, that it's, it's an ethical this is a big dilemma, deal. so they're kind of like, oh, what, who are you to teach us? That's you right. know, like, they get kind of upset. And they keep asking him question after question, and the blind man's like, don't you, can't you see? Are your, are your eyes blind or something? How cool I mean, is really? that? All right, final question, uh, John 10, sheep not of this fold. I never noticed that before. I didn't either. <laughs> but it's How cool is that? Because so so that that verse that Yeshua quotes about like you are you are all God's you know sons yeah. um, that that Psalm in Psalm eighty two it ends actually I mean ta- saying for you shall inherit all the nations which is pretty cool yeah good stuff what about the Samaritan village what about the Samaritan village you talked about the setting his face at Jerusalem yeah and going to the Samaritan village. He so, couldn't go to Samaria. He went to it. They wouldn't receive they would, him. In. Um, so that's our last question on setting his face toward Jerusalem. So setting his face to Jerusalem seems to be something of a negative thing in the references that you provided. Um, although I think that it's also possible you could view it as simply being very resolute. I think the reason Samaritans wouldn't let him in is because we've already seen in John chapter 4 that Samaritans have a totally different worship structure. They don't believe in going to Jerusalem. They believe that Mount Gerizim is the... Right. Location you're supposed and, to be, and we get that in the beginning when he's talking to the Samaritan woman. Because well. she's that's what her first yeah. question. We're, I mean, we, we think we're doing it here. We you think, guys say we got to go over we there. We think you are the Messiah. When is the kingdom coming, or how are we supposed to keep Shabbat? No, which place are we supposed to worship at? Yep. Jerusalem or the Mount Gerizim here? So basically, you've got a religious civil war going on between these half Jews and sure. the real Jews. Right. And so Yeshua comes to the town and says, "Hey." I will, uh, you know, it's going, obviously going to Jerusalem, and they're like, oh, well, then you're not part of our group. You're on the other side. We don't want you here. Maybe. Maybe. I, I think it was more of a... Well, I'll, I'll say what I think. Go ahead. Well, just the comment about I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Mm-hmm. There are some who, who view, and this includes certain... Orthodox Jews, that the other sheep he's making reference to here are the lost tribes that have been lost. dispersed and gone. And so we met on that topic five, six years ago. So, so there, so there is that perspective. Mm-hmm. It's not just you know the nations in general, mm-hmm. but it's more specifically that he is going to go gather. Those lost Jesus. Israelites. Sure, could be, could be, because that's the job of, of Messiah. Absolutely, he'll gather so, all of his elect. Who is the um, shepherd? That needs he's, to the, he's the true shepherd for sure. Cool. Um, it could be. Um, I think we can all agree, though, that the sheep, the other sheep that are not of this fold, cannot, by definition, be everybody else. We agree. It's got to be. 
It's because not to be sheep. Well, because he is, he says after that that my sheep know my voice. Right. So it can't be everybody because you wouldn't right. have to go gather everybody. I mean, it's just like everybody. Uh, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Uh, the shepherd, the sheep follow the shepherd because they recognize their master's voice. They know his voice. But if like a stranger, like it's like, uh, like it said, if there's a stranger who tries to lead these sheep, they will not recognize the voice. That's correct. Other than the shepherd. That's right. Who they truly follow. Yeah. It's like the parable about sowing the seed. You know, some seed will fall away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. To All right. So it could be Jews that don't know they're Jews. Jews that have been completely assimilated into the world. Some well, would argue those the, are Gentiles. The phrase that they will become one flock with one shepherd. Mm. Some would make the, make the argument that harkens back to the to the, uh, two the to the two sticks and that whole prophecy the of the two becoming one. Yes, right. So, right. Ezekiel, You look to me. You look at Isaiah 56, 57, 58 in there. It certainly seems to imply to me to the non-Jew would, for me, be more of folks that were not of that sheepfold. Because I would argue, if, if he's going to gather up what are ultimately other Jews, then they really are part of that sheepfold. They just don't happen to be in the fold. And for them to hear his voice, they have to believe on him. So yeah, of course. They, yeah, of course. So, so it doesn't just those of the first fold or not all of Israel or all right. of the Jews right. at that time anyway. So it could go either way. As a non-Jew, I want to believe it's the non-Jews. <laughs> but that's because I want it to be that way, which is always how you should study the Bible. <laughs> all right, so setting his face toward Jerusalem, I think is a purposeful thing. It only appears in the Word of God the two other times that I, I gave it to you. And I will tell you this, the Septuagint translates those two passages with exactly the same words as, uh, as you find in the apostolic scriptures. So basically you're looking at a setting of his face, a resoluteness, as uh, Joshua said. It is uh, prosopon, setting his face. In uh, one of them... Uh, he's setting his face, uh, was it uh, Ezekiel or something? He's setting his face against Jerusalem, I think, and the other one, you know, kind of thing. But it, it seems like he would not be deterred. And we see this in the Gospels here. It'll, it'll come up in uh, one of the other writers as well, where he, he won't turn to one side or the other. He is absolutely steadfastly focused on the goal. And I'm reminded of Paul's admonition to us that we should set our sights on the goal of the high calling in Christ Jesus or in Messiah Yeshua. That we would walk the walk and we would be the example. That we would be absolutely uncompromising in our walk among other people. That we would be known for whose we are and what we believe. And we would stand tall for that. At the same time, expressing the humility and the put others first attitude that we read about earlier that seems to identify these two 
folks on the mountain. I can't see any other way to look at that. But to me, it gives me a sort of a challenge. Do people see me as significantly involved in my faith? Serious enough about my walk that I would forsake things on the wayside? Or do I act like it's no big deal? Well, it's a Sabbath, but it's, I mean, come on, you know, if you really want to do that, we can do that together. Or, um, God made pigs, they can't be that bad. Those are some pretty wild examples, but it does come down to other things, right? Perhaps being alone in an elevator with another woman. Perhaps it's looking at things that we ought not to look at. Perhaps it's engaging in coarse jesting, as Paul puts it, that is perhaps inappropriate for those of us who have set our faces towards that high calling. I'm not trying to preach to you. I'm just trying to encourage myself for the next week ahead. But uh, if if it works, give it a shot. Amen? Amen. Mr. McDonald, there is the tallest book on the top shelf there in the middle. If you would open that up and look at the very inside cover, I want you all to recognize that this man recognized that it was a Hebrew book and opened it backwards. No, the inside cover, right on the cardboard. Yeah. If you'll uh, do your best now to give us the second half there and pluralize all of the pronouns for us, and you'll have to do that in a mighty Canadian voice so they can get you on the uh, audio here, sir. So that's where the, so that's where the um, Canadian non-Jew... That would be the Canadian non-Jew. He's the only Canadian non-Jew in the, in the, uh, in the room today. That's there you right. Go. Right. We thank you, Lord and I, my, our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the, with those who dwell in the study hall. You have not established our portion with the idlers, for we arise early and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written in you, O God, you will lower them into a well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out their days, but as as me, as me, but as me, we will trust in you. Amen. Amen. Okay, two quick things before you walk out. First, for those who are watching remotely, uh, Gregory says that the Chrome browser is a much more robust experience than using Safari. Um, I haven't tried it because I always seem to be on this side of the camera. But uh, give that a shot. Um, This was on sale and may still be on sale until later in this month. But this is the Practical Tanya, a brand new volume that has uh, all 53 chapters of the Tanya in one book. And it is uh, by Rabbi Chaim Miller. I'm impressed with his stuff. Uh, I have a lot of his uh, his works. Uh, But this is a new thing. Uh, The Tanya is uh, an exposition uh, written by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and uh, it's got some cool stuff in it. But it is a little difficult to understand, so you might need a practical view of the Tanya. So if you want to look at that, you're more than welcome. And uh, 